This episode is made possible by our generous patrons. Welcome to the Ink to Film Podcast, where we read the book and then see the movie. I'm James. And I'm Luke. And this week, we discuss the end of the first novel and the first season of the TV series Game of Thrones. This is the end of our month of Game of Thrones, our, our, our month of thrones, if you will. Uh, this is our fourth episode, we, and we've been doing it in kind of a weird way, uh, at least unusual for us, and bouncing back and forth between book and film, or book and TV series, I should say, and then covering some of the similar ground uh, in, the, in the episodes as we go. What have you thought of the way we've been doing this, James? How is it striking you? Well, first off, it's weird that we're ending our coverage when I feel like this has been the appetizer and it's ramping up for me because I'm getting (laughs) so Game of Thrones ready for the for the end of the show. Yeah, I've liked how we covered it, though, having them both at the exact same time, like having the events of the book the exact same time as the events of the show is something I've never done before. I've never Mm -hmm. been currently reading the book and then stop and then watch a couple episodes. So I think it's a, a new experience, which is tough to do for this material because we, we've both been through it so many times. Yeah. Uh, and I actually this this week my my instinct was to start reading and then go watch the show but i started the reading and then was like you know what i'm gonna watch the show so i watched i watched basically all of the show and then went back to finish up my reading nice so that might have yeah i'll be interested to know how that may have changed your perspective on some things uh but before we really get into it uh we wanted to announce that our next project is going to be pet cemetery by stephen king uh favorite of the podcast we've covered what it now and the shining and we're going to be getting back into it again uh, when it part two comes out later this year. So we got lots of King ahead of us, um, which I'm sure we'll continue on um, since there's like a renaissance of his movies right now being made. Early returns right now are that this is like a great adaptation and I've never read it before. So um, and I don't really remember the movie that well. <laughs> so uh, I'm really excited to cover it because I feel like I'm coming into it really fresh. And uh, I'm glad that the early returns on this movie look like it's going to be really good. So. I'm excited for it, and I hope you guys will all join us for that. Yeah, I can't wait. It's it's one that I think that we've had on the books for a long time, so to see it finally coming out uh, and to see that everybody's excited for it like we are, it's going to be it's gonna be a good time. And it's been a little while since we've seen something that was currently in theaters. Yeah, it'll, it'll be cool to do that, but let's get, let's get into Game of Thrones, man. So I am, am so excited because this is like we talked about in the first episode here. This is one of my favorite series of all time, very important to me. And, you know, I was getting a little I was getting a little bit nostalgic and I don't know what the word is, but like thinking about how this this might be the final Game of Thrones episode we make, because there's no telling if we're going to come back and do season two. I mean, we might if it's if it's very popular, but right now that's not like a concrete plan. So this might be the end of our Game of Thrones coverage because of how much I love the series. I feel like we it would be a disservice for us not to go back. But yeah, it's it's a huge undertaking. So if it's like it's again, it's going to take a month for us to cover another another mm-hmm. season of the show and and one of the books minimum. So so yeah, it, I hope that it's not the last time we're in Westeros on the podcast. But that's definitely a bittersweet yeah uh, idea there. Well, just to help it go down, I've brought something along here. I don't know if you can see it in the camera. It <laughs> I is, can tell that it's a Game of Thrones beer, right? It is an Amagang. Game of Thrones, Three-Eyed Raven, Dark Saison Ale. Nice. So I bought this when I first moved to Oregon 
uh, I think like shortly thereafter. So it's been it's been like in a number of fridges, just moving around for years. For a while, I forgot about it, and that was why I didn't drink it. And then it became a thing where it was like I had had it so long that it was like I can't just drink it for anything now. It has to be for something. I figured this is the perfect time, right? Like we're we're, we're winding up our coverage here, so I'm gonna open it. See if you guys can hear it on the mic. It's got it's one of those that has like a cork in it. Let's see if we can hear it. Yeah. For the listener, the bottle exploded, and there's there's beer everywhere. <laughs> Uh, I don't know if that's a good sound or a bad sound on a mic, but here's uh, here's the pour. All right. Um, on the bottle, it says, From the darkness, I watch you, all of you, all of your lives with a thousand eyes and one, abiding in the d- shadows of this dark saison lie beguiling and entrancing aromas and flavors, girded by crisp, lasting herbal hop notes and a yeasty, spicy finish. I would totally share this with you. I wish I could pour you a glass, man, but you're all the way in Florida, so I can't. <laughs> Put it in the mail. It's only one o'clock here, but whatever. Cheers. <laughs> Cheers. I remember when they first started doing those beers, I was so excited, and I went and got the Fire and Blood one that has like a, it has like peppers in it, like chili peppers or something brewed with chili peppers. Ooh, that's really interesting. Uh, anyway, so that's enough, sh- you know, shitting around here. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> shitting around, I don't know what that means. Uh, <laughs> um... But yeah, we should probably get into it, man. We're going to go episode by episode, I think, again, and do a little description of it, a little short summary, and then kind of react to everything that happened and talk about some comparisons to the book. Cool. I'll start us off. The first episode in this last bit is episode seven, You Win or You Die. In King's Landing, Ned tells Cersei he knows all of her children are Jamie's. They soon learn that Robert has been critically wounded by a boar while hunting. A dying Robert names Ned as the protector of the realm to rule until Joffrey reaches the legal age. Ned sends a message to Stannis, Robert's brother, intending to enthrone him since Robert has no legal heirs. Ned tells Littlefinger about his plan and asks him to gain the loyalty of the City Watch, the only force capable of overpowering Lannister forces loyal to Cersei. After Robert's death, Ned, Littlefinger, and the City Watch confront Cersei and Joffrey in the throne room, where Littlefinger and the City Watch betray Ned and attack his men. At the wall, Ned's younger brother, Benjen, goes missing during a mission to the north. Jon Snow and Samuel Tarly are picked as stewards, with John assigned to Lord Commander Mormont. The stewards swear their loyalties to the Night's Watch. In Essos, Robert's assassin is captured before he can poison Daenerys. Drogo vows to conquer the Seven Kingdoms and give that realm to his son. He starts marching towards Westeros. These last few episodes, there's like so many iconic, just awesome scenes in it. Uh, and and this is, this is just getting me excited for what's to come, but uh, there's some really, really standout things here. Um, I think... Momoa performing uh, the it's really basically right out of the book um, his his mm-hmm. speech but in the book he's just saying it to Danny I believe and here he's like saying it to everybody and he's he's just like really intense and man is that a cool scene he throws the the torch into the fire he kills it here and and it also just underlines how good Martin is at writing epic sounding lines because <laughs> oh, yeah. it sounds so fucking good and it sounds so cool and it's also scary because he's just like just like how intense he is i don't know it's a it's a great scene um to just hit on one random one out of the blue but yeah that, that one really stood out to me i had in my notes that i don't think anybody could have played drogo like jason momoa he is absolutely so intense you can really feel like he bought into that character and made it his own in a way you know, say what you will about DC stuff and the Aquaman film that came yeah. out, which actually I still haven't seen. I'm surprised. 
you're the comic book guy it's one that i just i just missed in theaters and, and i'll be watching it very soon i'm sure but but i like momoa for the role yeah i just didn't love him in, in justice league so mm-hmm. i hope that, that that film's a little better but i think that he's he's a he's a force like he's a, he's an actor who brings definitely a certain intensity and physicality to each role and, and you can definitely see where he, why he was cast as drogo because he pulls it off 100 percent yeah, and I think it did a lot for his career, too, because I think people, Hollywood noticed how awesome he was in this role, I think, you know? Yeah. And the fact that it was only a one-season thing, I, it kind of freed him up to, like, just springboard off of that success and go do other things, which worked out for him well, I think. Uh, but yeah, just in the story, it's also interesting to me how Robert's, you know, failed assassination attempt sort of, uh, it's set up like it's going to spur this now, all of a sudden... He's going to take his Kalasar across the sea when he wasn't to, going to before. And it's just so cleverly done because you, when you see this scene, you think you know how it's going to play out. You're like, oh, shit, they've, they've, really, they've really screwed it up now. They've kicked the hornet's nest. Caldrogo is coming over. He's going to fuck everybody up. And uh, the, the, the confidence Martin had in his story to then kill off this character so quickly after this is wild to me like it's that's so crazy you know and it's it's uh it's impressive again i've said this throughout our whole coverage but just thinking of a version of this story where drogo actually gets across with his calisar is just a crazy thought yeah just seeing the the i mean we see we see jorah go up against some dothraki but well we do eventually because we see you know in the most recent season we're seeing that we're seeing but it's danny at the head of it not not drogo Right. But, you know, she's at the head of a bunch of Dothraki screamers in the season seven there. Yeah, she is, which is that was an intense scene. That was crazy. Yeah, it's cool, man. Uh, so, yeah, this will bounce around to some other scenes that were in this episode. Uh, fucking Littlefinger and his betrayals and his uh, his 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 manipulations. And then and then uh, Janos Slint, who is one of the like most despicable characters that doesn't actually do a ton. He just like, I don't know. I hate him. Yeah. It's like, it's like the other guy, uh, the other one who kills, uh, Syria and like, eventually like we see how awful he is. Oh, Marin Trant. Exactly. Yeah. yeah. He's such a, he's such a, like, he has such a little amount to do, but you hate him so much the, the entire time. And yeah. Uh, speaking of, speaking of that, um, do you, do you buy into any of the Syria Pharrell theories? So I did for a long time, especially as the show, you know, like around like season four or five when we were getting some of the, uh, some of the house of, of black and white, I thought for sure Syria may have, I was like, he's a faceless man. He's got something. Yeah. He's still alive. Can't think of any other really theories other than the fact that he's still alive right now. Well, that he is Jack and Hagar is the theory that, that, that him and Jack and Hagar are one and the same, uh, I think is the main theory for him. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, I think I think that's something that could be true in the book. Um, I don't know if it will be. That to me feels like kind of an out there theory. Uh, but he does. I, I mean, what what lends itself to this is we don't see him die, and by like all rules of storytelling, if you don't see someone die, they could still be alive. <laughs> yeah, I listened this time very very closely when Arya was running away, and it really sounds like someone was disarmed. Like the the sword noise that you hear sounds like somebody dropped their sword. Yeah. But I guess the the flip side to that is we see well, could have been Marin Trent, <laughs> but Marin Trent's alive later though. <laughs> I think it's quite telling. Until we saw Marin Trent, I assumed that Marin Trent went down. And, yeah, and, and there's no way Serio like is Marin Trent or anything like that because he's doing too many just like terrible Marin Trent things. Right. So yeah, I don't know. It's 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 it, that is baffling like how that could be, but and then I I just think it's also one of those things where like it could be different in the books than in the show. I think in the show it's they're not going to go all the way back to Serio Pharrell season 1, I don't think at this point. 
No, but that does bring up an interesting one that's set up here at the end of this um, with Gendry and Arya. And do you think that there's anything to... I mean, Gendry clearly is is the the Baratheon bastard heir. Yeah. Uh, that he's like the first... He would be the first in line. But in season one, Robert talks to Ned about how they, he wants to join their houses. Do you think that Arya and Gendry are the way that the Baratheon Stark houses come together? Are bound by blood or... or yeah, I mean... It, they definitely set it up in season two more than season one, but it's like the very beginning of it is here in season one. I personally don't think it's going to happen, but that's just kind of like my own personal feelings. I, I really don't know. Um, Gendry is kind of a mysterious character. His story is pretty different in the book and in the show, um, because in the in the show, they give they also roll in a couple other character stories into his. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's it's tough to say what, what, you know, that's something I'll definitely be on the lookout for in this final season. What, you know, what is the ultimate fate here? Because um, he's this lowborn Baratheon who has the commoners like on you know commoners mindset and the commoners on his mind. So people could argue that he would make a good king because he would actually think, care about people. Maybe. Yeah, I don't really see Arya's story ultimately coming to her being with Gendry. It just doesn't feel like something she'd be interested in at this point. She's gone through some. I don't know. It just doesn't seem like something she she'd go for at this point. Yeah, I agree with that. But yeah, we're getting a little bit out of this out of this episode here. So what? So Stark, Ned Stark, in the book, he basically has Littlefinger try and buy the gold cloaks. Like he concedes to do this. Um, but then Littlefinger uh, sides with the Lannisters. It seems like, and the gold cloaks are actually in Cersei's favor. And it's more than just being bought. It's like Heron Hall and all this stuff to to Janos Slint. Right, which is in the show. I did want to say it was like a background convert, like as Sansa's walking into the court is something we hear in the background. So that was like a cool little background detail that they put in that was in the book. Yeah, I agree. I, I think that was cool. And then, um, so what I was trying, I guess, what I'm trying to say is, is where was the point in which he could have changed things? And to me, it is his conversation with Renly. My thing is, he also the we talked about it before, but. He's just so he's too brash. He's too blatant about the way he he threatens Cersei. If he, he if to he, a point, but then he doesn't act when the moment comes. And I I honestly think that moment is when Renly comes to him, and he says, "We need to seize. We need to seize Joffrey and and do it now before Cersei has time to make her plans." And he's so he's so right. <laughs> well, he's he's correct in in terms of winning the throne. But I I do agree with Ned here because it is literally like. Robert's not even dead and you're going to drag his son out. And at this point, he's basically just an innocent kid. So I understand why Ned would would say no. But it's just like if he had not had that conversation with Cersei and they just did everything that they needed to. I guess I guess the, the main thing was that Ned didn't expect Robert to die so quickly. If he had died a day or two later, I think Ned's plans would have been in place to where he could have peacefully taken power but Cersei like because he died so quickly Cersei and Joffrey were able to immediately be like we're he's on you know what I mean if Ned didn't come into the throne room to find Joffrey there with a the whole court assembled I think things may have gone a little differently maybe if if Ned had already had everybody on his side this was I think kind of a test from Renly he, he wanted to see like how committed Ned was to this and was he willing to do what needed to be done and Ned basically said no i'm not and so renly was like all right i'm getting the fuck out of here and then he left <laughs> and i think the other implication is is if the implication would be if ned said yes to renly then he is like he's acknowledging renly's basically place on the throne rather than stannis which which ned ned believes in yeah no and and i agree that that is that is definitely something that gets discussed and and i 
I guess what I, I guess my thought is that like that can be figured out once you have control. Yeah. And Renly's rightly pointing out that they need to seize control now or they're going to miss their window. And Ned basically says like, yeah, I'm not going to I'm not going to like, you know, sully Robert's name by having this happen right while he's still alive and like all this stuff. And, and you know, this this. But to me, this is like because like before we were talking about murdering children and like he Ned has a hard line, like I'm not going to murder a child. And that's why he tells Cersei about that he knows about Joffrey because he doesn't want to murder Joffrey or he doesn't want Robert to murder Joffrey. So I can get on board with that because like I, I understand that's like a moral thing and we can't, we've, we're cheering him on for, for not wanting to murder Danny, then we got to cheer him on there too. But this to me, he's not saying let's murder Joffrey. He's just saying let's let's capture him. And this is the kind of dirty stuff you have to do, I think, to succeed at the Game of Thrones. Well, and that Cersei out and out says that. Like Cersei says, you, you know, in the Game of Thrones, you, you win or you, you win die. Win or you die, yeah. Which is the, that's what this episode is, right? So, <laughs> um, yeah, anyway, I, I just, I, I think that's, because we were talking last episode about Ned constantly making the right decision, but still it all ends up bad for him. Um, that was one of the moments where even if he didn't, I guess even if he didn't say like, okay, Renly, let's, let's like team up and do this together. That was still the right move regardless. And he could have done it with his own men, maybe. Right. Like he needed to act then he didn't, he instead he waits and, 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 and plots too much and, and um, relies on Littlefinger way too much. <laughs> right. Well, that, that is the other thing that could be argued is that he, he was good in his, in his mind, like Littlefinger was loyal enough to Catelyn to not betray him. And that was his biggest mistake, obviously. Yeah, trusting Littlefinger. He should have maybe he should have trusted Varys a little more and Littlefinger a lot less. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I find it interesting that in the in the book, Varys is kind of positioning himself as somebody who serves Littlefinger, whereas in the show they're kind of equals that are like matching each other. Because hmm. in the book, in the book, when Ned meets with Varys below in the in the cells, uh, he talks about how he's just like Littlefinger and basically Varys is like no I just tell him the things that he he wants to know I tell him what he needs to know not everything in order for him to think that I serve him kind of hmm yeah because well I think it's because Varys isn't he he doesn't have a lot of power he's just the spider you know he's just the master whisperers or whatever so he mm -hmm. has to sort of play into everybody else's power and let everybody else think that they have more power than him and that includes uh Littlefinger in the show or in the in the book at least yeah I agree in the show it seems a little bit more like they 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 elevated Varys in standing a little bit to be more equal with him I think that a huge detail that's going to become important because I think that so much importance was put on the air of the Baratheons that it's got a, it something has to come from it at some point or maybe it is that that thing that we're supposed to be focusing on while he's pulling other strings and ultimately once it gets down to the end it's not going to matter but the fact that Ned changed it from Joffrey to your rightful his rightful heir mm, being yeah. being the one who would take the throne i think is an important move yeah and 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 at, at the very least this shows us that ned isn't as strict on his honor as he may like make, like for everybody else to believe right because in this moment he has to essentially write down something that robert didn't say right um so that goes against your personal honor right so right, and I but I guess ultimately it doesn't matter because because Cersei just rips that letter up. Yeah, so it's like to me it's it's sad because we're seeing Ned compromise on his honor here a few times, but his mm -hmm. downfall is that he doesn't compromise enough, or early enough, or early enough. Yeah, he, he waits until it's too late. Yeah, let's get into the next episode. I think so. Episode eight is called the Pointy End. 
Oh, and this is the one we talked about earlier um, that Martin wrote an episode. And uh, I saw that he wrote this one. Did you did you read anything about that or see anything about that? Uh, he wrote an episode per season, I think, through season three or four. And then kind of realized that it was taking time away from from writing the actual novel. Yeah. Uh, so I think he stopped at some point. Which we still don't have. So, <laughs> But I do love the idea of him shaping an episode all himself because that like especially in and it, it's always an important one the ones that he writes aren't like some some setup you know you're getting the correct execution when george r. r martin is writing the screenplay for the episode yeah all right so let's read the i'll read the description here for this one episode eight was called the pointy end Arya manages to escape the red keep after her bravosian swordmaster delays the guard sent to arrest her oh so that happens in this episode we thought maybe it happened in the last one it sounds like it's set up in the last one but it starts here at the start of this episode um, but Sansa is captured. Rob hears the news and prepares the northern armies to fight the Lannisters, leaving Bran behind to rule Winterfell. Lysa refuses to fight the Lannisters, and Catelyn leaves to join Rob's camp. Tyrion and Bronn are surrounded by Shaga and his men. Tyrion convinces them to escort them to Tywin, who will repay them. They arrive at Tywin's camp, where the latter asks Shaga to help them in their confrontation with the Starks in exchange for even greater payment. Joffrey appoints Tywin as his hand. Sansa begs Joffrey to show mercy upon Ned. Joffrey agrees if Ned publicly recognizes Joffrey's claim to the throne and admits to having committed treason. At the wall, some bodies are affected by the White Walkers are found. In Essos, Drogo's soldiers begin attacking nearby settlements, enslaving locals in order to sell them and gain the money to to buy the ships necessary to cross the Narrow Sea. It's interesting that he wrote this one because this to me is also a lot of like stage setting for what's to come. Uh, like the final act is like being prepared for, but this actually isn't all the like big shit going down. Yeah, if you were thinking he would write the biggest episode, he would have written the next episode, episode nine. Uh, so there is an amazing, just speaking of uh, the, the Momoa stuff, the incredible Momoa fight happens here where he uh, kills one of his own writer, blood writers or whatever and rips out his tongue and throat or rips out his like, yeah, I think it's tongue like- Tongue through his throat. It's through yeah. his throat. It's yeah, and you just like, shows it to him as he dies like it's that's one of the fucking most badass crazy scenes have you seen uh real quick have you seen mcgruber the no. the movie based on the the, <laughs> the snl skit no i haven't i'm aware of it but i haven't seen it he he can't throughout the entire movie he just constantly throat rips guys so he just like goes up and like rips people's throats out and that's like his go-to move <laughs> and so like <laughs> it, it kind of made me think of that oh that's funny <laughs> um so what I was going to say is there is an apo- perhaps apocryphal story. I don't know. But I've always heard that Momoa himself approached uh, Dan and David, Dan and, David um, and said, you know, this, this Khal Drogo guy, everybody talks about how much of a badass he is, but we don't actually see him do anything badass. He needs to have a scene where he demonstrates how fierce of a warrior he is. And they agreed and ended up writing this scene in specifically for him. Because this isn't how it goes down in the book. He gets, yeah, he just gets the scratch in battle. Yeah, he's, 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 yeah, it's like off page. He's gotten, he's gotten wounded in battle. It's a little bit more than a scratch. I think in the book he calls it a scratch, but it's like his nipples missing and he's got this big gash across his chest. In the show, it is a literal like scratch where it's almost like he didn't even need to get that scene to, in my opinion, um, because it was so minor. And I think that Danny kind of makes some Ned mistakes here. Well, she's too trusting. She's too trusting. And, and she's naive and she, a little bit here, for sure. Yeah. And yeah. she she ultimately, like you could say, Drogo would still be alive if not for Danny. 
Yeah, it's interesting because I don't think we ever get it 100% confirmed that Mira, was her, what's her last name? Mira Mazdul? Maz something, yeah, I'm not sure the last name. The yeah, I think it's Mazdul. Um, that we don't get her confirming that she poisoned Drogo, right? In the book or the show? Because I feel like the show, it's pretty, pretty blatant that she, because she says like, I did this because he burned my, because he went through and burned my temple and raped my, I was raped a bunch of times beforehand. and Yeah, but it's more just like, um, da- uh, Danny's asking like, what, you know, I bought his life. What is this life? You didn't tell me that this is what it's going to be like. And then she answers by saying that, like the, the ritual she did to bring him back to this point. But I'm talking about specifically like the reason his wound festers and he's laid low. I always assumed it's because she was poisoning him or like putting something in the wound care that makes it actually, you know, like (laughs) uh, rot. And um, I think that is what happens. You know what I mean? Like, I think that we can read between the lines, but I just don't know that there actually is any confirmation of that 100% given by the character. Yeah, I yeah, I don't think that anybody verbatim says that that's how it goes down. But the Dothraki are very specific about how they don't trust her. And she's a witch. And she clearly by the end had ulterior motives. So it makes me think that we're definitely supposed to think she was poisoning him. Yeah. Anyway, I just thought it was interesting that it wasn't actually specifically said because I had always just assumed that's what happened. And I think I think it's a safe assumption, though. So, yeah, back at uh, Winterfell. Rob uh, deciding to call the banners. I thought it was a pretty epic moment, and, and I like the way they did it with a uh, is Mister Lewin. Um, mm-hmm. He kind of says like all of them, <laughs> and he's like, "Yes, all the banners." <laughs> um, I love and it. Then, yeah. And then he looks all like kind of proud. He has this like certain gleam in his eye. I don't know. Oh, that was cool. Yeah, knowing all of the stuff that we know now, you can see through one season of Game of Thrones or through the first book, you can see that George R. R. Martin's doing something different than normal fantasy, but where you think it's going to continue down the path of another normal fantasy novel, like this hero dies, so his son's going to rise to take on the people who killed him. That was the moment. Like, I think it wasn't until, until Rob goes down that I realized like, oh, like both, both of the, like we, in reaction to Ned dying, Rob becomes the king in the north and he goes south and he's killing everybody and he's everything's perfect yeah. until he makes until he also makes a questionable move and then ultimately goes down to and that's the moment where it's like holy shit that's why people say like if you love a character they're dead it's because the people who are who you're pulling for the Starks are multiple times just just like completely screwed over that leads me to an observation I had that I was going to save a little bit until we get into the to these next episodes but I think it's a good time to talk about it now uh, we see the fall of several major warrior leaders in Game of Thrones. In Game of Thrones, like all, basically all of them <laughs> um, here. Like we see, so Ned Stark several times over says that he is a he's a soldier. He knows he knows how to fight, all that stuff, kill his enemies. Mm-hmm. Uh, we see him lose to Cersei. Essentially, uh, we see Robert lose to Cersei. Uh, he is another soldier who notoriously bad at ruling even though uh, he was very good at conquering. Uh, we see Khal Drogo, who is this warrior leader, the head of his Kalisar. We see him fall to Poisoner. Um, so, and, and that's just the beginning. Like you said, like that continues on. Well, we see, I would say, I would also say like other major like soldiers who are, who are basically defeated are like Barristan Selmy is, is disgraced and leaves. And like Jamie Lannister, the greatest swordsman goes down Rob's able to capture him and like it seems like they take everyone out of the equation that you could have seen it doing purely on could have seen them succeeding purely on like might or like military strategy 
and it turns into almost like these lower characters who aren't maybe as physically able but have like the mental capacity to to challenge everyone yeah are kind of the main focus from here well on. And, yeah and if you track that throughout you know obviously we're we're in full spoilers for everything here but um later seasons you got rob going down at the red wedding uh you get ultimately john goes down uh you get the the old bear the old bear yeah. uh goes down who's leading the night's watch yeah john even goes down to an extent he just comes back <laughs> um right. the one that i see that hasn't fallen yet not truly although she has her ups and downs is danny but that makes me wonder what's going to happen in this final season with her because she is the exact blueprint of a conquering hero who is great at conquering but isn't necessarily very good at ruling because we saw her struggling to rule in Essos. And uh, and so I wonder how she's going to do now that she is in Westeros and, has, and is in position to maybe seize the throne. If that is the endgame, um, I don't know how I feel about a final endgame where Danny sits the throne because I don't know how good of a ruler she would really be. To me, it just doesn't seem very George R. R. Martin. It's she's she's t- succeeded far too easily all the way through the show. She's had hardships, but not nearly as many as other people. Well, I, I guess that's debatable. She's had a lot of hardships for sure, but she is definitely the mold of uh, of Robert himself, right? She is the conqueror, and she's coming to she's coming to Westeros with like, you know, what is it, four hundred thousand? No, 40, was it forty thousand? I don't know. Huge number of Dothraki who are going to be, you know, raiding the countryside, burning everything. Um, sure, mm. she's going to rein them in some, but ultimately, like that's what they are. Like, and they're, you know, now they're in Westeros. They're not going to leave. And you know, what happens after the war's over? Like, you know, do they just, you know, become farmers? Like, what are they going to do? Like, um, so. I don't know. I just it, it seems to me like she's all about getting the throne, but like I don't know that she actually really wants to rule. It's more that she thinks it's hers by right, and uh, that makes me a little bit uncomfortable because that's very like, you know. But you, you maybe you hope that John can 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 help her in that regard. But um, I don't know. I I think the the what I'm trying to say is I, I feel like the show has been trying to tell us that these kind of people don't make good rulers. Mm-hmm. So. I don't know if she's going to be different than that if, if it comes down to her at the end. Um, that's why, I, I don't know, maybe like, uh, who, who knows? It, you know, uh, uh, there's another podcast I listen to called Bald Move, um, which they're great. They're great podcasts. Check them out. They have a whole series of Game of Thrones episodes. Um, many, many episodes. <laughs> and one of the things he, the, I think it's Aaron on there, always talks about is like, what is Martin playing at? And I think that's a great question is like, what, all of this has been leading to something we're going to get in the final season and it's going to be what's the government look like at the end of Game of Thrones. And you could argue that that's what he's been building up to all along. Is it going to be like a like are they going to dissolve the monarchy in you know favor of a republic or something like with a you know constitution and a democracy or is it like just another conqueror sitting the throne, you know, who in in who knows. Uh, what if or they just get set back so far there's so few people left after the war or something they get set back so far that they're it's almost like early days of westeros when there's just like there's the people in the north and and some people here and there but not a lot of people to to like maybe they're they're like the seven kingdoms are separated by their own rulers or something like that again yeah the seven kingdoms separate i could see that too I don't know how satisfying that is, but yeah, it, it, no, I'm just going to be very fascinated to, to see where that goes. We're taking up a lot of time talking about it, so let's move on. 
So we get the scene where uh, Tylen is, is is cutting up the the stag that we mentioned last episode in his introduction, and uh, Charles Dance just is amazing uh, as Tywin Lannister. Uh, he's so imposing, and uh, one of the things uh, my wife looked up while we were watching it because we we started talking about it. That is a real stag that he is really cut, carving up there. It is not a like a fake prop. <laughs> I had this as a little trivia fact to tell you about. Um, he learned how to. He learned the day before. He learned how to do that. Yeah. So, so they had like a master, a master carver come in and show him how to like cut up a deer, and he he did it while he was delivering his lines and everything for the actual scene the next day. That's so wild. I mean, he he absolutely. I think he. I would say, especially early on, other than like Sean Bean, he would be in my opinion, turning in the, the greatest performance. He was absolutely so imposing. I wonder if they got any, any, in, into any trouble for that. Because it's like you could argue that an animal was harmed in the making of it. Now, that animal was probably, you know what I mean? Like, it's probably like venison that they were going to sell at a market or something. But, uh, yeah, I don't know. I wonder if, if they had any, uh, gotten any trouble for that with, uh, like, PETA or somebody like that. Yeah, I'm not sure. I, I feel like it's one of those things where they're not going to go kill it f- specifically for the use of the show so could they it wasn't necessarily harmed for the making of it yeah but i'm not sure maybe i'm sure P- Peter probably wasn't happy about it but Peter usually isn't happy about seeing animals well that's true harmed so i think the last thing i wanted to talk about was just the fact that aria finally used needle to actually straight up murder a, a, a kid i mean the yeah. kid was coming after her didn't expect her to necessarily murder the kid for it but she she's starting to you can kind of see where she's she's like this feral she's on her own she's surviving on her own at this point she's kind of escaped the the watchful eye of of everybody in the in the king's guard and everything like that so she's she's surviving on her own at this point and uh yeah she you can see that she's kind of having to fend for herself and and sticking somebody with the pointy end this early on yeah, man, and it's dark. This is the, the you know the beginning of many dark turns she's going to take um, that leads her to being a you know a faceless assassin <laughs> by by season seven. Uh, but it's it's it is it is uh, it's a big moment, right? This is her first kill, and mm-hmm. it is a, uh, it is this boy. I, I, I'm trying to remember the differences between book and and show here. I felt like um, in the show in the show they maybe made the made it seem less important or less important, less, um, less of a moment where Arya didn't have any other choice, but whereas in the book, it felt like she had to do it more. I think so. Does that make sense? I agree with that. It felt to me like in the show, she could have just run away or something. But in in the, in the book, it was like he had her, he was going to turn her over to the queen. She had no real choice. I guess she could have just like wounded him and, or something, but, um, it almost felt like accidental too. Like she didn't realize it was going to kill him. Um, mm-hmm. although she stabbed him like all the way through and the point came out the back of him. So who knows? Um, <laughs> it's pretty brutal in the book too. Um, I don't know. Yeah, it's, it's a, it's an important scene. Uh, just to bounce back to that Tywin scene though, for a minute, actually, uh, I love to see Tywin and, and Jamie here because I feel like we've always seen that relationship through Tyrion's eyes and how mm. Jamie is kind of like the, the favorite son and and Tyrion's this kind of uh you know h- hated runt of the family yet i like to see the weight of the expectations and sort of uh disappointment Tywin has in Jamie even here because of because of him joining the Kingsguard and all and all that um mm-hmm. 
it just yeah it's a fascinating relationship all around in the Lannister family and and uh very dysfunctional <laughs> yeah the way that he talks about Jamie and how Jamie's too too concerned with what other people think I think is this moment for us to see Jamie's humanity through how much of an asshole he's been through the whole first book and season where he he does care about what people think about him and it does affect him when people call him the Kingslayer because like we mentioned before he was doing the right thing in his eyes and for and what, and but Tywin's, what a fucking hypocrite though Tywin is such a hypocrite because Tywin cares about what other people think more than anything else it seems like yeah but he he wants Jamie to to be like the, he wants Jamie to become him in some in some way at some point and I think Tywin at least to have the confidence to realize like if even if somebody thinks something of you it, it's better to be feared than to kind of like be affected by what people think I, I don't think Tywin's like losing sleep at night about what people say about him he he just wants people to fear him I mean, this is a man who all he cares about is the legacy of his own name. And uh, he tells Tyrion, like, you're not going to bring that whore to court, um, which is all about appearances, right, to the Lannister name. So even if it isn't, like, personal, like, he cares about what people think about the Lannisters. And and to me, it's kind of hypocritical to say, like, why do you care what people think of you? When, like, that's his main operating thing. And and that's also the reason that for, like... um, all of this like showmanship about the wealth of the Lannisters, right? And why he projects all this wealth is because he wants everyone to think that about him. Like he's obsessed with people thinking of him as this really wealthful, successful family. Um, I don't know. It's just uh, I, Tywin. Tywin is a fascinating character who, in my opinion, is kind of full of shit. Um, it's just like he doesn't approve of the way that that Jaime cares about honor and he doesn't agree with that take and like that being a, a virtue. And so that's what he actually disagrees with, even though he calls it, you care about what other people think of you, but that's not actually what it is. I think he just doesn't care about honor <laughs> in the way that Jamie does. Yeah, I can see that, but he does. I mean, he, yeah, it's about legacy, not honor for him. Yeah. Like you said, which legacy I feel like is tied into honor some in some ways. Um, but ultimately like he'll do whatever he can. He's not honorable in keeping his legacy untainted. I think it's more that he knows that, like, you know, the winners, you know, it's, it's you know, said many times, like, history is written by the winners. Right. And so he he just cares, he just knows that the Lannisters have to come out on top, and then they can rewrite things to say whatever they want about, like, how they actually got there. And so that's the ultimate end goal for him. Um, which, you know, come to think of it, it's like, that is, that that dream of Tywin's is gone now, Right. It's the most part. Is Cersei pregnant in the last season of Game of Thrones? I think so. I think, I think she so. is. I think that was revealed. Yeah. In, yeah. So that that I guess is the one that maybe maybe it won't end up being uh, the end of the Lannister line. But I don't. Um, I, the thing is, I don't see Cersei making it out. So it'll be interesting to track that and see if that's even an important thing or if it's just a shocking moment at the end of last season. So one more thing that I want to talk about in this episode, because we definitely need to move on to the next one, but yeah, I just wanted to go back around to Rob and the conversation that he has with his mom with Catelyn as she shows up to their camp and, and kind of she's seeing him as this leader now. And Rob Mm -hmm. is having to take on all the responsibility and the way that he handles John Umber especially with the use of Grey Wind, is just such a good... And, and it was almost verbatim from the book, everything yeah. that happened. And your meat is tough. He asks him, he says something about how, I hope you're not unsheathing your blade uh, for other, anything other than cutting my meat. And he's like, your meat is tough when he loses yeah. two fingers. And just the yeah. joy and the toughness of the, of the North, you can see throughout everyone 
yeah, uh, it's it's cool. It's, it's awesome. And and like I said before, Rob being set up as kind of the next coming of Ned, and you can see how he's gonna he's gonna follow follow in his dad's footsteps in in the way of battle and in the way of politics. It seems it's just it just seems it's something to hang on to for us Stark uh, Stark family fans. Yeah, yeah, I agree. It's it's cool, and and just seeing the North rise and. And 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 go on the war path is fun because we know it doesn't end up well, but for for now it, it's going very well for them. And yeah, cool to see. Episode nine is Baylor. The Stark army arrives at the twins' castle. Catelyn convinces Lord Frey to let them pass and assist them, in exchange for her agreeing to the marriage of Rob and Arya to Frey's ch- children in the future. Rob sacrifices two thousand soldiers in a confrontation with the Lannister army to capture Jaime. In a public hearing, Ned confesses to treason and publicly affirms Joffrey as rightful heir. However, rather than sentencing him to the wall as had been negotiated, the vengeful Joffrey has him decapitated. While Sansa and Cersei and the other counselors objectify futilely, Sansa watches her father die and Arya is present in the crowd. At the wall, Commander Mormont gives his family sword to Jon in gratitude, and Maester Aemon reveals to Jon that Aemon is a Targaryen. In Essos, Drogo's wound becomes septic and his death is imminent. Daenerys convinces a slave woman to use blood magic to save him. The woman tells everyone to leave the tent and stay out until the spell is over. Daenerys goes into labor and Jorah brings her into the forbidden tent seeking aid. A lot of big stuff in this episode. I mean, this is the episode, right? This is the, yeah. I would say this is the climax of the whole season. Yeah. Uh, where do we want to start? You just tell me what scene we're starting with. <laughs> let's let's talk about the biggest thing last. So for now, let's talk about... Um, Rob, we, did, we were just talking about him, talking about his deciding to marry the phrase ch- children in the future. And, and and so they change it a little bit here because um, Catelyn goes in and, and negotiates all of this. But in the show, I thought it was interesting that Rob um, seems way more reluctant and kind of like dissatisfied with the whole thing. And he like reluctantly agrees to do it. Whereas in the book, it's it, it shows more that like he's he's all about it. He's like, yeah, I'm, that's fine. I don't care. What what do you what do you think the difference is there and why is it different? I think it's just the the advantage of hindsight. Like they knew, I think George R. R. Martin may have had it basically planned out, but they knew exactly what. Oh, was he definitely happen. did. Think about what's happening with the phrase right now. This is all this is all for the red wedding. But he doesn't have it physically written out fully and in, in potentially as far as it's gonna uh, the exact details of how it's gonna go down. And honestly, like having Rob not be reluctant at this point. Because he's so vengeful and he's so involved in the war, doesn't surprise me either. Like how it plays yeah. in the book is fine with me, but in the show, knowing that ultimately he's going to betray that promise that he makes, having him a little more hesitant, just it, it, I think it maybe makes it easier for the audience to understand. Like, oh, he doesn't necessarily want this, but he's willing to do it for the greater good. For now, there is it does make a weird moment where he basically asks Catelyn like if any of Frey's daughters were hot. <laughs> <laughs> and then Catelyn's like, yeah, one was, she was like, one was and doesn't give any adjective. Yeah, I don't know. It's kind of weird. Because uh, like, clearly that's not what's important here. <laughs> um, it, I, by any stretch. Um, right. So that to me is a very like, that's like the boy and Rob still is still there, I guess. Um, and so they're trying to highlight that in the show. So I can see why they did it. It kind of got me thinking about the arranged marriages in Game of Thrones that we know of, or, or seemingly the the political marriages, and I I got me thinking about about John Aaron and his wife Lysa, and kind yeah. of ultimately it's from from afar just kind of context clues. 
she had him killed, we know, or or a combination of her and Littlefinger. And we know that there were different motives, but clearly she wasn't happy with John Aaron. And John Aaron, we know John Aaron is this very honorable person who probably would have been similar to Ned in a relationship as far as being like, you know, doing it for the cause and then probably eventually being happy um, depending on the woman. So I don't know. It's yeah. kind of interesting to think of their their relationship and maybe... Yeah. And know, honestly, I think Ned and Catelyn is one of the few arranged marriages, political marriages that we saw, that we see here that is like, has turned into a genuine loving marriage. Yeah, I think you're right. I mean, Ned and Ned and Catelyn's relationship seems to have started as a, an arrangement, and then ultimately they they really did fall in love with well, each def- other. Well, it definitely was because Catelyn was originally supposed to be with his brother. Exactly. Yeah. Which uh, it seems that she was she was happy with that marriage as well. Yeah, I think she was more into that marriage than, and Ned was this kind of unknown. Um, so I think it took some time, and that also like tells a lot about that early early stages because uh, basically Rob, we learn in the book i'm not sure if it was in the movie or in the show um but we learned that rob was conceived on their basically their wedding night and then ned went off to war right after that and so he didn't even know i don't think that he was going to have rob potentially when all the stuff went down with john john being born wow yeah or maybe maybe he knew she was pregnant you know assuming he maybe got a raven out to him or something but it was this like he it was they'd only spent like a couple nights together you know what i mean like he didn't have this love that he has for catelyn now and I like the, you can kind of see Catelyn's point of view and how much she cares about Rob through that. Not only does he look like her family, not only does she, he look like a Tully, but it yeah. was like Ned was gone and it was just her and Rob, the baby Rob. And you could you could even see Rob maybe being the way that Ned and Catelyn ultimately came together and, and started to love each other in a, in a true way. Yeah, maybe. So I do want to get into one of my biggest disappointments with the show. And uh, I will fully admit that I totally understand why this is the case. It's money. It's budget. Um, but I am so disappointed in what happens with these major battles in the show. I was going to ask you, what's the most disappointing thing yeah. about this season to you? That's it, And man. I thought that you might say this. Tyrion, be- Tyrion being put in the van is such a like, crazy thing that happens in the book. And mm-hmm. then he decides he's going to go in there with his with his clansmen he realizes that he's being um, set up for uh, he's he's basically he's put on a, like a weak point in the line because Tywin wants the Starks to um, see the weak point in the line charge through and then they're going to like flank him and like, like basically get him up against the river and, and defeat him that way. And so it's all this thing that like Tywin basically sac- is wants to sacrifice that part of his line that, that Tyrion is in. And and instead, Tyrion is able to like rally his clansmen to actually withstand the charge. And Tyrion kills a couple dudes and has this like big crazy fight and really, you know, does well for himself in this in this battle. And so we see that like this sets up to me what happens with the Blackwater episode episodes later because we see him do this here. And I know that it's budgetary and that's why they had mm. to do it this way. But it is so it to me it like. It takes all of that van stuff, which still happens. Like Tywin sets it all up, but then none of it matters because he just gets knocked out at the start of the fight. And so right. to me, it feels like a dangling plot thread. Like, why was that important? I'm sure that, that they wish they could take it back and they wish they could throw in at least some sort of battle or a couple of skirmishes from the battle. Well, I'm sure if they had the budget they have now, they could. Exactly. Yeah. And yeah, it's just it's just a product of the lower budget, I think. Um, 
it was kind of a cheesy way to do it. Like it was kind of it's tried and true method. If you don't want to show the multi million dollar battle, you have somebody get the, a POV character get knocked out, and yeah, and then they wake up at the end. Uh, yeah, I, I it was a disappointing thing for me as well. I wanted to I wanted to talk about it because this also to me in the book is a reason it's like a moment where tywin doesn't show it but it's a it's like a respect moment for for him when looking at Tyrion. and you can almost say that like this this in turn and also his kind of um the way he he thinks of rob and he's kind of the only person who says like oh rob maybe a little more dangerous than than you're giving him credit for is is some of the reasons why he chooses Tyrion to go act as act as hand yeah, absolutely. It's I agree. It's he he gets a little bit of respect for him for for this in the book and in, in the show. I guess we're to assume that he thinks that Tyrion did the same stuff, even though he didn't. Um, the other thing that we lose out on is uh, some Gregor Clegane like being ridiculous, just freaking crazy dude on the battlefield. Yeah, in the book, you know, like he is he's this unstoppable force on the battlefield and we just don't see we don't get to see that his like at one point his horse like goes down and he just jumps off his horse and he just starts killing everyone in in the vicinity just yeah and he's like he's the first person at the head of the van and he said if anybody falls off any of his men fall off he'll kill he'll he'll chase after them and kill his own men yeah he's he's a fucking madman and berserker and just just a force and to me this is like some of the some of the stuff that really sells him here but it's also like he's such a dark twisted character and like um we've we know that he's been the one who's been like pillaging the riverlands and 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 and, you know like doing crazy stuff that made ned uh you know order beric dondarian to take him down yeah not to mention what tywin had him do to Rhaegar's kids and everything yeah not to mention that yeah he does like the dirtiest of dirty work and then uh and then at the end of this he's left to do more of it like tywin orders him to burn the riverlands and the amount of suffering that gregor Clegane inflicts on the small folk is like is is pretty wild when you think about it and that's why it's such an epic moment in the show and in the book when ned's like fuck it take him down strip him of all land all titles all everything and bring him to justice and like i feel like in the show it's not as it's not as big though it's in the book it's huge but in the show it's like it's just one of several things it's almost more about tywin how he orders tywin to come to court and that's all that. true but i i just mean that like having the context of the book and then hearing sean bean deliver the speech is, pre- is pretty epic well and here's the other thing so the the absolute brutality in which gregor does what is ordered to him uh ordered of him is what creates the brotherhood without banners essentially because they can't like let it stand so they they almost turn brigand but the brigand part of them is just to take out Lannisters wherever they find them. And like it's kind of like in revenge for what Gregor does here, um, which is really interesting. So he's setting all this stuff up now, which becomes much more important in like books two and three, I think. But uh, yeah, it's just really cool to see the early stages here. And yeah, I was disappointed at that the other thing is the whispering, uh, whispering wood um, where Rob takes Jamie. Now, in the book, it is told through Catelyn's perspective as she is like looking on and she hears some sounds and she sees a couple of like things through the trees happening. But we do also get like a lot more of a description of the battle to where it felt to me like there was enough there that if they had wanted to film it, they could have, um, but they don't. Um, and, uh, yeah, I just, there was a lot of really cool stuff there about Jamie Lannister, just like also being a madman on the battlefield. Right. And how like mm-hmm. he knows he's lost, but he still kills like ten dudes or whatever, and including like both sons of uh, one of the Karstarks, which becomes important later. Um, 
Yeah, so, like, we also see Jamie just being a madman. And, and like, I don't know if it was, I think it was mentioned in the show, but, like, in the book, Jamie had been winning tons of battles up to this point. Like, it's outlined that he is winning left and right. Like, he is is just, like, dominating up until this point. So this is such a great move to take him off the battlefield, essentially, by Rob. This is this is a very important moment. Yeah, and and I think it's kind of talked about more in the book, but just the fact that he sacrificed two thousand men to Tywin in order to take Jamie is such yeah. a huge decision for a, in the book fifteen year old kid to make. And it's interesting that in the book he he uh, assigns Roose Bolton, yeah, as the yeah. leader of those two thousand men because Roose Bolton like it doesn't care. He's like, okay, I'll do it. <laughs> you know, he's, he's um, a psycho vampire. Yeah, and Roose Bolton is creepy and like. Um, I don't have we we haven't seen Roos at all in in the in season one have we like we no, assume he's around he's but we haven't yeah. seen him. It's interesting right. that he is in the book though. The banners, you know what? It's interesting when they do the king of the no- the king in the north speech. The, the the Bolton banners are in the background. Yeah, I think he's supposed to be there. We so, like, just, we're to yeah. assume that he's there in that room. I think we are to assume that. Maester Aemon is the last Targaryen other than Danny. Yes. And he's speaking to a Targaryen that no one else knows about. Yeah. In Watching this scene now is it's so so we actually did I actually did the um I don't know if you thought about it, but the actual like tree, like how he's actually related to John. Do you know? Oh yeah. Well I know how he's well let me let me think about it for a second and I can I'm sure I can piece it out. So Makar is his father, so he's the brother of Aegon. Yes. He is the uncle of the Mad King. Which makes him the great uncle, I believe, of John. It could potentially be great, great. Hold on, let me think. So John to Leon, well, John to Rhaegar, who Rhaegar Rhaegar is his father. Right, that's what I'm saying. Go up, up one. So father, son of Ares. So Ares is his grandfather. Yeah, so great, great. I believe right. So Aemon yep. is it is it, and I love the scene we get with him because he's ancient. He is. That also shows how ancient he is, man. Yeah. And That's he, we, they talk about how, you know, 30 years before the start of the show ish would have been like the everything that goes on with Robert's Rebellion. And he talks about his struggle. He was at, at the point that he hears that his family is being taken down. He's an old blind man. So even if he wanted to do anything, he couldn't. It's a great scene, really powerful. And, and it's funny because it works really well, not, not knowing anything about John's parentage. Like it just works really well. It's like a cool backstory for the Targaryens, but also like the surprised surprise backstory for Aemon. And you're like, oh, this guy's actually this ancient Targaryen. He's really cool. But the man watching it back now, knowing what we know about Jon, just really adds a dimension to that whole scene of how neither of them know, like he doesn't know that Jon's a Targaryen, but in this moment, he's giving him advice to, you know, someone who's a part, a part of his family line. So the biggest moment of the entire episode, sh- most shocking thing of the entire season for a lot of viewers, uh, mm. Ned proclaims Joffrey as king and says that he's the rightful heir and then and is and betrays his honor to do that yep. and then ultimately is killed anyway because of Joffrey's just Joffrey. Yeah, man. There's there's several things I want to talk about here. Uh, so, yeah, first one. Uh, there's a big change in the, in the show. Uh, Ned sees Arya out in the crowd. Now, he might have seen her in the book, but we don't know because we're not in his perspective when Arya's perspective. But we see for sure he sees her in the, in the in the in the book and the show because he tells Yorin to go to her well um, Yorin gets to her in both the book and the show yeah but in the in the in the book I always took it to be that Yorin just knew what she looked like like he'd seen her before at Winterfell or something and, and just okay. found her like I didn't think he was told by Ned 
by any stretch. Right. Like, I think that was a show. Now, to me, it kind of fills in a potential plot hole of like, why did you, how does Yoren know what Arya Stark looks like? Um, but I felt like I, you could explain that away by like, he's been to Winterfell before and he's probably seen her. Well, we um, saw him in Winterfell, didn't we? Yeah, I think you're right. I think he might be there early on um, while Arya is there, like in the very beginning. I'm not um, really right. sure. But one thing though, uh, in the show, when he, when he talks to him and tells him, he's signaling to him that Arya is somewhere but he says Baylor. He just says he just says Baylor cuz that she's at the statue, of, the Baylor. statue of Baylor, right? Yeah. Do you find do, is there any cuz Baylor what is do you think there's any significance to the fact that she was standing on the statue of Baylor? Oh, uh I didn't think about that. What what, what do you think the significance is? I I, I honestly did, didn't look into it or anything, but I've always just I thought like I don't know that I ever knew until this viewing that he said Baylor. I thought, like, I maybe thought that mm. he was saying his name or something like that and trying to get his attention and then, like, looking over. It's probably it because you have to read the book and know that she's standing next to the statue of Baylor because in the show, she's just standing next to a, a statue. Right. And you don't know what the statue is of, right? You know, we know they're at, the, they're at the steps of the Baylor or whatever, but we don't know that that's the statue of Baylor for sure. So maybe you don't make that connection when you watch the show generally. Um, I do like the idea that maybe it's like. Um, Maybe it's like a holy thing, right? Like, like a, I don't know. Like it's a, it's like a blessing that she is actually there. Yeah, I like that he he makes her look away. Yes. So that's another thing that uh, that yeah just plays so well, Yorin. Because man, that scene is so masterfully done. Um, I think the the rising the rising action the and then the betrayal of Joffrey. And uh, I also just want to shout out again. I think we mentioned earlier how like everybody loves to hate Joffrey. But this actor nails this scene. Like, this yeah. is an iconic moment when he turns and he says, but they have the weak hearts of women. You know, Sir Ellen, bring me his head. Like, it is such a, cr- like, that's so well delivered. And it has to be for this moment to work. We have yeah. to, like, believe it 100%. And I totally do. And it's such a good moment. And, uh, man, when he when he orders that, and then it's, like, almost slow motion is, like, Ellen's getting the great sword. And then that's when Yorin starts, like, grabbing Arya by the face and saying, like, look at me, look at me. And I don't know, just like that's such a crazy moment, and like the emotions build up, and it's it, and it, it, Sansa and it ends screaming. With him. Yeah, well, everybody, and like Cersei's trying to like tell him no, but this is like yeah. the moment of also Joffrey asserting that like, oh no no, I am a crazy fucking boy king now, and everybody has to listen to me. Yeah, <laughs> which is like that's the whole yeah you know, the next like three seasons we're gonna see a lot of that. Fallout, right? yeah, and and Illyn Payne is wielding ice. Which is another um, like, like he's executed with his yeah. with his family execution sword, and 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 in the sound design of it too, because we see it's like all this noise, like everyone shouting, Yorin yelling at Arya, people screaming, and then it go like it drops and it's just silent, and we see uh, Ned like just put his head bowed, thinking like, he knows it's over, and he starts muttering something to himself. Now, do you know anything about the theories of this muttering? Have you read anything about it and like what he might be saying here? No, but I, I mean, I just assume something something old god related. But it'd be crazy if he's like a secret secret warger and he wargs into a direwolf the last second. Okay, so that's one of the more wild theories is that yeah. he actually is warging here. Um, but I don't I don't buy that at all. No, nah, it seems a little too 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 ma- magical for Jorah. There's two major theories, and these have been supposedly debunked. But the two major theories are either he says Valar Morgulis here, mm-hmm. or he says, I kept my promise, which I really like that reading. Of yeah, it. I like that one too. Um, that's my head canon. I want to believe that that's what he says here. Like it's a thing he's, he's saying to Liana and he's thinking about John in this moment and all that stuff, right? 
because the promise me Ned is such a big thing in the book. So like to me, that really like there's like a poetic thing to that. Now, the reason that this has supposedly been debunked is that uh, Sean Bean was in an interview in 2018. Now, I'm not sure when this came out as like as it pertains to season seven. Um, but Sean Bean was asked in an interview what he says there, and he claims that he was just muttering like nonsense as a prayer because he felt like Ned would pray in that moment. So like you said, just like a prayer to the old gods or mm-hmm. something, because he, he felt like that's what Ned would do in the moment right before he dies. Mm. But I don't know how much we can believe actors sometimes, man. I, I really don't. <laughs> um, yeah. And and because, uh, I mean, like Kit Harrington said he was at, done with the show and out <laughs> after <laughs> he was killed and cut his hair and like, I'll remember all that. Like, no, I'm yeah, really dead. It was I ridiculous. Cut my hair, I, there was never a day that went by that I thought that he wasn't going to come back. Yeah, so I don't know how much we can trust him, but even if even if he didn't say anything there, I my headcanon is he did. Like I, I really love the idea of him saying I kept my promise. Yeah, I like that. I mean, I think that that yeah, and now that you say that, it makes me think about how um, Robert Baratheon was saying to Ned as he was dying, like I'll say hi to Leanna for you, and it kind of makes me a little happy to think that Robert, Leanna, and and maybe Ned are all together. Oh man, we didn't talk about we I think we blew by that scene, but when when Robert actually dies, I felt like the book version was a more powerful version. We didn't talk about this last episode, did we? Cuz he dies so. in this in this this one here. Um episode 7. Yeah, I felt like the book version of that scene was the more po- emotional moment, and I felt like the the show like has some emotion to it, but it just I, I don't know, it, it maybe it was they didn't get into all the things that were said between the two of them, but um, I, I found the Robert's death more touching in the book. I can see that. Yeah, he he. It seems very quick in the show. It goes yeah. by really fast. It's like a couple minute scene. Well, because I think what it is is like they immediately like he 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 orders everybody out and then he immediately says you know write this down and he gives the the order. But I think in the book there's more of them too like talking about the mistakes that were made up of the way, reminiscing about old times. Right. I'm glad it's you here at the end with me, like all this kind of stuff. And and we see their friendship I think shining through more. Whereas here it's in the show it was like a lot of that was probably cut for time. Um, which yeah. by the way, like anytime I say cut for time, I also have to remember we had like a ten minute agonizing scene with Littlefinger just dropping backstory on two prostitutes having sex. We didn't even um, talk about that. We blew by that. We didn't we blew in, by it, but that's like the yeah. worst sex position scene. I think that's actually the scene that spawned that the saying. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, that's the exact scene that it was coined. Yeah, and like so, anytime I think about them not having time for something, like okay, cut back on that shit and give us more of Robert and Ned or something, you know? Yeah. Uh, that scene felt like it dragged on forever. Like I know it probably was only like a two minute scene, but it, it felt like ten plus minutes to me when I was watching it. I was like, this is so bad. Only like only like a third of what he says is even important. Yeah, I agree. All right, man. So let's get into this final episode if you're ready. Let's do it. Fire and blood. The North secedes from the Seven Kingdoms and pro- proclaims Rob as their king. With Jamie captured by the Starks and Robert's brothers challenging Joffrey's claim to the throne, Tywin appoints Tyrion as acting hand, while Tywin aff- fights to defend Joffrey's reign. Jon plans to desert his post at the Wall to avenge Ned and support Rob, but his friends convince him to honor his oath and stay. Jon then joins a Night's Watch expedition to find Benjen beyond the Wall. Yorin, a Night's Watch recruiter, helps Arya escape King's Landing disguised as a boy, while Joffrey plans to make Sansa his queen despite her father's execution. Daenerys learns that her unborn son is dead, and Drogo has been left in a vegetative state due to the witch's treacherous magic. 
Daenerys ends Drogo's life. She places her three dragon eggs next to Drogo and lights a funeral pyre. She burns the witch alive on Drogo's pyre and walks into the flames herself. When the embers die the following morning, Danny rises unharmed, flanked by three newborn dragons. Jorah and other witnesses kneel before her. Let's save that scene. Let's. I think that'd be a good place to end. So let's save that scene for the end. Um, let's let's back up. Yeah, we get we they get the King in the North moment, which is uh, I think actually really well done in the show. Like they really that that's one where like the epicness of that moment was really nailed. Yeah, I agree. There's this moment, and I can't remember if it's if it's the episode where where Great John gets his fingers ripped off. But there's this look that that Rob has, just like looking over his eyebrows and it's it's like you can see ned in there and also Mm -hmm. like the fur everybody talks talks about rob as the young wolf and like that guy's a young wolf like he's he's gonna tear some stuff up and when everybody proclaims i think john umber basically delivers the speech but they just proclaim him king of the north and theon kneels down and it's all just that that's the rising action of the fallout of Ned dying that you would typically yeah. expect to see. And then we just like, you could just assume from another fantasy story that he's going to carry through and, and avenge his father, yeah. save his sisters and, and like unite the kingdoms again. This is why a lot of people thought that even though it felt different having Ned die and possibly Khal Drogo die, that still this was going to end up being a classic fantasy tale. That's what I mean, yeah. And you know what I mean? And and I think mm-hmm. a lot of people felt that way. That's why I think book three is where it really says, like, no, 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 this is something different. However, you could argue maybe we're still leading, leading to some of, these, some of these classic areas in the final season here, or in the final book. But we also talked a lot about how uh, I, I really think the, fo- the books and the show are going to diverge quite dramatically. So just because we get certain things in the show doesn't mean we're going to get them in the books. Um, And I do want to say, like, I know George R. R. Martin is setting up a lot of maybe he's setting up a lot of traditional kind of fantasy endings. I just don't see this this story in the books ending in in any conventional way. It's got it's got it because I just think everyone it wouldn't feel right for the story for it to end in some sort of. I don't know. I just don't see it having a very happy ending. Like, I think it's going to be mostly bittersweet. Yeah. Uh, I think he said, I think he said in interviews that uh, the ending will, will be bittersweet. Um, that will be the tone of the ending. I think someone got that out of him. So we'll see if that holds true. We also got, oh, so John deserting here momentarily and then getting brought back by his brothers. I've always felt like it's kind of cheesy when they surround him and they, and they recite the Night's Watch. In the show him. or in the, in the book? kind of in both i think it doesn't strike me i think it plays better in the book because you don't have to like hear them say the whole thing i Mm -hmm. guess but um yeah i don't know it just it always struck me a little cheesy Mm -hmm. i'm I'm, i like it uh yeah i go in for it i think it's just the i understand why you say that though they they like bounce around in the group and like each person says a piece of it yeah almost like it's like choreographed or something i think it's Mm -hmm. part of it too yeah I like the in the show they made a detail. I don't think it was in the book, but in the show, like Sam falls off the horse, and John is like willing to go back to check it out because he he you can already tell he cares for his Night's Watch brothers. He goes back to check on him, and they convince him to come back. But I I do like the scene overall in terms of the meaning of what what, it, what happens here because seeing seeing John as much as I want to see John and Rob side by side on the battlefield, the the joint between this scene and the scene that he has later with with Commander Mormont allow John to realize that the war that he has coming is what much more important than the war, any war that could be fought further south. 
So yeah. I, I like that. I like the idea that he's also bought uh, into yeah. it to the point that his brothers can bring him back. I agree. And, you know, I like the way the scene ends. I like I like him where we leave him at the end of season one. I, honestly, all of our characters are are kind of like starting their next adventure at the end here, which I think is, a, is an interesting way to end. Right. And, and draw mm-hmm. you into the next book and into the next season of the show. Uh, well, and it's such an epic beginning to so many adventures, too, because like the first one was very, very it, it was like maybe two adventures going on, maybe three, I guess. The King's Landing stuff, the the Esso stuff, and the and the um the wall stuff, but uh, there's so many adventures that branch out from here, and just that feeling at the end of the episode, it, it's it's a good feeling to know like you have so much in store. So we also get so Arius Arius plotline here is actually borrowed from book two, um, because in book one this this stuff with the setup with Yorin and 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 like uh, Gendry being there and all that that's like the start of book two. That doesn't happen here. So it's interesting to see that they drew that into here. Uh, why do you think they did that? I think to set up her adventure. I think that just yeah. having her having her story end where it was in the book is kind of leaving her on a cliffhanger. And if they had if they ended the first season with everybody clearly having a path that they were going to head down, I think it would get people more invested to to come back next season. Yeah, the the true cliffhanger they leave us on is Danny. Um, which uh, are we ready to get in that one? Do you have any other? Oh, let's talk about Joffrey and Sansa. So that that's a it's a Joffrey such a Joffrey moment. I'm going to bring you out to the wall and make you look at your father's head. And then oh, yeah. I love Sansa saying like you know because he says I'm going to bring I'm going to give you your brother's head and she says like maybe maybe he'll give me yours and oh, we want to see that so bad right <laughs> but that's yeah. not how it goes down. <laughs> um, Game of Thrones does not give that to us. Does not give us the satisfaction. Uh, and then, yeah, I just love like how they brought that book, that moment from the book where she almost pushes him off and then the mm-hmm. moment passes and she doesn't quite get it in time. Um, I'm really I'm really happy that that small moment was still brought to the screen because I think it's a, I think it's a cool one to see her like Sansa has to go through a lot of growth here. And this is like the start of her learning to like fight back a little bit, I guess, is her yeah. at least thinking about doing that. Well, we can see the fight in her. And I think that's like the Stark. And we, like, yeah, she needed that moment in terms of everything she goes through and she's going to go through. That was yeah. definitely a big even though it was only a couple seconds. That was huge. Yeah. Um, well, and like I also think about how like Arya had someone in Yorin have her not look. But like Sansa like watched Ned's head get cut off and feels like it was her fault in, in like a large part. Yeah. So that's got to be really brutal. And she's not much older than than Arya, you know, so mm-hmm. it's not like she was equipped to handle this well. So um, I, I don't know. I feel like I have a lot more sympathy for Sansa now, um, whereas I remember early on like not being as big a fan of her because of a lot of the like, I mean, we see her being kind of terrible in a lot of these early episodes. And not yeah, like I mean, not appreciating her family enough, and and being way too on board with Joffrey and all that. The, I, yeah, I mean, I felt it's it's not quite. I, I definitely wasn't as on board with Sansa as I was with Catelyn. But it's I said before, like Catelyn was a character that I had to eventually come around to going back and and appreciating her character more each time. Um, I feel like Sansa's the same way. She I like her more now than I especially when I first started the show because yeah she's it seemed to me through like throughout she sold her family out to to the Lannisters repeatedly and yeah I wasn't there for that but I understand a little more now and I do I think that I I, I'm already just having watched the first season I'm already pulling for Sansa and that moment where she almost kills Joffrey is a big one yeah that's a big reason why I think because that makes us feel feel for her in a way that I think we could like if you just left it at the Baylor stuff like I think we'd be more mad mad at her heading into the next season. 
in the book, there are a couple of things that I, that I had written out here. The, we get the story of the children of the forest and the first men and the Andals being told to Bran, I believe. Mm-hmm. And I think that that's huge for the lore. And like that, that being left out of the show, you know, changes things for later seasons. They have to do more explaining later. Um, yeah. But another another one was we get Podrick as as Tyrion Squire in this yeah. first one, which in this in the show we don't get till much later. Yeah. Season two, I think, or maybe even three. I think two. Yeah. And uh the the this is in both show and book, but I wanted to talk about uh Rickon and Feral and Feral Shaggy Dog down in, yeah. in the crypt at the beginning of this episode where in the book I think he, he even attacks the Maester, right? Yeah, I think so. I think Shaggy Dog and, bit, and bit Summer has bit. to jump in and, and save the day. It's it's uh the, it's like Osha or whatever in the in the show instead. Yeah, and Rickon and Bran seem to have green sight. At least maybe there's something to do with like a younger because Rickon's so young, he has like this dream that, that Bran shares where they see Ned's Ned in the crypt before yeah. he like right Which, as like, he dies. I, what I really like we don't get to see that dream, but the implication being that it actually was Ned or some sort of premonition. Um, yeah, that's like a, it gives me, you know, it gives me it gives me chills kind of moment, which was cool. It's like it's always it's always cool to have that in a show. Yeah, well, I, I like that. Maybe it lends some sort of support to that the warging theory that that maybe he was <laughs> traveling through some sort of green. There are people who believe that Ned Stark is still alive somehow, and that we're he's going to make a return in the final season. Um, yeah. I just I I don't see it, but yeah, I, I mean, here's some of the reasons why I think you're you're, you're right. We see supernatural shit going down. So, uh, I mean, we've never seen a headless white. I guess maybe we have seen a headless white. So do we see Ned Stark's body come back as a white? <laughs> I don't know how that would happen. He's got to be a skeleton. He's got to be a skeleton by now. Although we've seen some skeletons. Um, but let's get into another another big uh, prophecy here. I think to set up is the uh, Khal Drogo prophecy um, mm-hmm. from Mazdul, who says that because Danny says when will when will he you know, be normal again or whatever. And she says, when the sun rises in the West and sets in the East and the mountain, you know, mountains blow away like leaves or something like that. Um, and, and, and that's when he'll, that's when he'll, you know, be back essentially. Uh, I don't have the exact words in front of me, but this, uh, there's a little more to it too. Cause in the, in the, in the book, it's also when your womb quickens again or something because she's, uh, and like you have another child, um, which isn't a big part of the show, but in the book, that is a big thing that she doesn't think she's able to have any more children. And then at some point she does start getting like her menstrual cycle again. And so it's implied that maybe she can have children again. Um, and so in the book, you could argue that a lot of the um, things of this prophecy have come true because uh, in the book, there's a character, I think his name's called Quentin Martell. And he, in house Martell is the son has the son as their emblem and he, uh, in the books, um, he- leaves from the west, heads east, and then dies. Uh, he get he gets killed by Danny's dragons in the uh, where they're locked up because he tries to like unchain them. And so you could argue that he is the sun that rises in the west and sets in the east. And then the final p- piece of the prophecy is the mountain uh, mountains getting turned to grass or whatever, and people have or leaves and or whatever. And people have argued that that's like the death of the mountain, Sir Gregor right. Clegane. And that mm-hmm. if when that happens, we'll see the return of Khal Drogo. <laughs> so, so that's my question to you: is like, are we going to see the return of Khal Drogo? My thing is like, I've always this, I've always felt that like Khal Drogo reincarnate is Drogon, the dragon. Yes. So, yeah. so 
maybe it just means that like maybe Drogo Drogon will be at his most powerful when all of the prophecies have come completed or something, and maybe mm-hmm. like Cal Drogo will be himself again through through Drogon. But uh, I don't know. I mean, maybe in the book. I don't. Th- I don't think physically seeing Cal Drogo rise from the grave and be the the warrior he was before. I don't really see that happening. I agree. Um, I think there a way that this could be fulfilled in both book and show is that Danny and John could have a child together, and she could name that child Drogo. That'd be cool. Thus fulfilling the prophecy. Yeah. So maybe. <laughs> I don't know if that'll happen, but yeah, that that's like the one way I can see this prophecy coming true. And but I do agree with you about like I've always kind of felt like Drogon is is sort of called Drogo reincarnated too. So I don't know. So yeah, that leads into this final scene there though here, and and, and we get um her baby's dead, um and she it's gonna have this final funeral pyre for Drogo. She ties the witch to it and she walks in and we get the whole unburnt scene and the and the ending here. And uh this is uh this is another absolutely iconic scene, right? Like from right from the book, um and and put put to screen and, and man is it is it cool and I think it's a great way to end the season here. That was a huge ending. Just absolutely insane. Um if I think if you were a casual viewer and you hadn't really put the pieces all the way together, when she's putting the when she's putting the eggs in the fire, like that's your signal, that's your time to be like, okay, we're gonna get some dragons here. Um, but even just, just like, even if you saw it coming a little bit when she's got the dragons on her and they're just kind of pulling out and showing all the Dothraki kneeling to her, you're like, okay, she is now full on Khaleesi. She's going to lead people forever. The dragons are going to grow. We're going to see massive dragons in the show and, and we're going to see Danny take the seven kingdoms. Yeah. Really, really cool. And, and she is the mother of dragons here and like literally instead of, instead of giving birth to her son with Khal Drogo, she essentially gives birth to dragons here. Right. And, and it, it's so, it's so, it's so cool how we kind of change. It's like all the stuff about the stallion who mounts the world. Like I always felt like that was also Drogon too. Right. Like her giving birth to uh Drogon, the dragon is like, he is like that prophecy. When, if you, if you apply it to her dragon, right it is actually still kind of true and that he is this he is this ultra warrior who's going to like lay waste to the world and drogon is that in dragon form right do you think we see the end of dragons again at the end of the show yeah that's a good question um i don't know and what's martin playing at I, yeah. it's it's hard it's tough to say and and i think that's the big question is like where is this all headed and i can guarantee you that no matter where it is headed it's not going to satisfy everybody <laughs> be yeah. prepared to be dissatisfied everybody because <laughs> it's going to happen this is too big a show there's too many different things going on like it's just impossible to satisfy everyone and even shows to me that my in my opinion that have great endings like breaking bad in my opinion has a brilliant ending masterfully done there's still people who who were dissatisfied by that ending. I remember it when it came out, people yeah. were complaining about it. Yeah. It's, it's I mean, it's the nature of endings. There's no more after that. So you're right. gonna, like, even if it's not not necessarily, even if you do like the ending, there's people who are going to be bummed out because it's over, and there's no yeah. other details. There's nothing else to come. Um, so I don't know. I I think that you try to take it with a grain of salt and realize, like, if you if you hate the show ending, then hold out hope for that last book. 
hope that those books are great. Yeah, which I know I will be. If, even if I like the show ending, I'm going to be old enough <laughs> for those right. last books. Uh, we haven't talked about it much, I don't think, in our coverage. But uh, yeah, I'm, I'm, I believe Martin's going to write the books. Uh, I think we're going to get Winds of Winter at some point in the next probably one to two years. And then the hope is that, you know, the final book will actually get delivered. Um, and a lot of people are very pessimistic about it and think he's going to die before he's able to finish it, which is a very dark thing to say, but a lot of people say it. Um, I don't know. I, I want to believe in the man. I want to believe that he'll get it done and that maybe the show ending will like lift some pressure off of him and he'll actually be able to do it. Uh, that's my hope. I I think he's going to do it. I agree. It's coming out. He's going to drop both books. I think this book, I think that at this point you wait for the hype to hit for the show wait for stuff to die down a little bit, maybe release it the following year. And then, yeah, I have to hold out hope. I know it's like, I know it's kind of a fool's a fool's dream, maybe, but I have to hold up maybe like a year or two later, we get the final book, but I'm sure it'll be longer than that. But I'm willing to wait personally. Like I, I'm, I'm here to wait. I don't, I'm not going anywhere. Yeah, honestly, that's the thing. I don't care how long it takes. Like I'd prefer it sooner, but I have so many other things I can read. It's not like I'm hurting for good books to read, you know? So, like, when it comes out, I'll be happy when I get it. Yeah. Exactly. And I, that's an unpopular opinion. I know a lot of people do not agree with that. A lot of people, like, want it. They feel like they're invested and there's this promise and that there are things owed to them as readers. And, I, I like, I get a lot of that feeling. Um, I just don't share it. I think, uh, to me, there's too many good things being written right now. There's too many great series and shows and, and books out there that I will be fine um, waiting. And I would rather have a great book than a rushed book too so i'd rather it take five or six years or more um as long as i get it which is what i do want um as long as it eventually comes out i will be happy with it and and if it's good i mean obviously if he writes a terrible book he writes a terrible book but you know assuming that doesn't happen which you know who knows a lot of people think he's kind of lost it too because you could argue that book four and five are, are are the weakest in the series um but I don't know, man. I think I think Winds of Winter is going to be a good book. I think it's going to be, a, you know, maybe even a great book when it comes out. Um, I really do. So I, I still have hope and, and I still believe in Martin. <laughs> yep. I'm a Martin loyalist. <laughs> yeah. And honestly, at the end of the day, if you are bummed out by the end of the show as well, and you're and you're one of those people who is who are not holding out for the book and you're not invested in the book, there's a bunch of spinoffs and you're not going to be able to escape Westeros eventually. So wait for the spinoffs. <laughs> I'm sure they won't be ne- like nearly as good as the original show, but if you need that extra fix, it'll be there. And and let's hope they're good shows and maybe even great shows. Yeah. All right, man. I think uh, I think we've we've come to the end of our Game of Thrones coverage. Uh, I just wanted to say that I really enjoyed it. Um, I'm glad I got to go through this with you, and I feel like uh, we've really dived into this material that I really love, and in a way that that I'm excited that we got to do because I never feel like I know something as well as I do until after we cover it yeah you know like because we really just research it that's why i feel like i don't see a world where we where we don't cover the books but again it'll be a massive the other the other books and other series of the show um massive undertaking so i I would like to think in the future we get to it but if if this is it i'm happy that we were able to cover it and i think we did a pretty good job and i liked how we were able to tackle it with with the knowledge that we have this far along in the show and, and in the books yeah. And I hope you all enjoyed it too. And please do return with us uh, next week when we start into our Pet Cemetery coverage. If you like Game of Thrones, you're probably going to like Stephen King. Uh, a lot of the more just like dark stuff and, 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 and you know, crazy content. And uh, we're, we've always enjoyed covering King. So hopefully you'll, you'll come back with us next week. 
And I did really want to thank uh, JV, who is a patron of ours, who uh, is helping support this podcast and keep it going. If you wanted to learn how to become a patron yourself, go to patreon.com forward slash ink to film and you can get access, learn how to get access to all of our bonus content, which we're going to be putting out another episode this month. Uh, there's, I think there's like 11 or 12 of them now. Connect with us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram, all of those at ink to film and join our Facebook group. Council of Inklings, where we post polls, we prefer potential bonus episodes, or maybe even projects for the for the show proper. Yeah, and uh, leave us a rating and a review. Uh, if you appreciate the show at all, uh, we'd love to hear from you, and that's the best way to let us know, is to publicly give us a shout-out in the form of a rating review. iTunes, Stitcher, uh, on Facebook itself, wherever you want to leave it, we'd love to have it. We'd like to thank Jennifer Delazana for providing our transcripts, and thank you to Ramsey B., for the use of our intro and outro music. All right, man, I'm going to finish off this Ama Gang. I think I'll post a picture of it to our Instagram. You can all check it out. Uh, but cheers to you. Cheers to all of you for listening. Thanks for joining us for all of this. And uh, until next time. Valar Morghulis. <laughs> 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 <laughs>